Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. This is episode 255. Can you believe we've done that many of these things? We're recording this live on August 18th, 2022. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today across the internet for uh, by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hey, great to be here. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm trying to do a little bit more per- performance here. With Call me out. Look at that. Oh, there sorry. you are. No, no, other way. Hello. Other way. Yeah, there you go. Hey, there you are. All right. Hey, uh, we're messing around with video. We got a great show for you all tonight. This week on the show, we're going to be talking about how a surgery performing red- surgery <laughs> performing robot is ready for tests on the International Space Station. We're also going to answer some questions from the community about frequency of travel for researchers, getting access to people for those interviews, and what matters most for junior designers. But first, uh, Barry, what's the latest over at 12.02? So over at 12.02, we've just had go live. Uh, we have a lot of people who author... Um, Human Factors books. We use Human Factors books. They're a staple of what we do. We, they, they're always on the end of your desk. But I've always been quite intrigued about what makes somebody get up and actually think, right, I'm going to write down what I've learned and what I've done throughout my career and produce a book. Because some people just churn out books. It's it's incredible. Um, I struggle to churn out just a simple report. Um, so we had an interview with Robert Bridger, who's ex uh, he's a past president of the CIHF, and um, and he's produced a number of books now. And so he gives a real insight into not only um, the process behind him publishing books, but also the differences between publishing with a publisher and doing self-publishing. So really, really interesting. So if you want to hear more about how to publish books, then go and head over there. I love hearing about books, but we know why you're here. You're here for the news. Can you please do the Sam Jackson imitation here with the, the title of the episode? It's the part of the show where we talk about human factors news. Barry, what's the story this week? You get the title reference, right? No, not at all. Um, ah! yeah, see, if, if, if we talked about this in the pre-show instead of um, messing around, then we, we could have queued this sort of thing up. Anyway, the story this week is about surgery performing robot and it being ready for tests on the International Space Station. A surgery-performing robot is ready to be tested aboard the ISS in 2024. The robot called Myra, M-I-R-A, which stands for Miniaturized In Vivo Robotic Assistant, and can be operated remotely by a surgeon as a non-invasive way to perform medical procedures in space. The virtual incision Myra uh, platform was designed to deliver the power of a mainframe robotic-assisted surgery device in a miniaturized size, with the goal of making robotic-assisted surgery accessible in any operating room on the planet. Working with NASA aboard the space station will test how Myra can make surgery accessible in even the most faraway places. So whilst the ride to the ISS is a huge step, Myra won't be slicing out into astronauts aboard uh, the ISS just yet. The robot will instead be operating inside a locker that's about the size of a microwave, cutting tissue analogues and moving rings along a wire. Over the next year, the team will write the robot's software and conduct tests to make sure that the robot survives the launch to the ISS. The previous tests of this included uh, retired astronaut Clayton Anderson controlling Myra from 900 miles, which is uh, 1,448 kilometers, across the Earth, and the successful removal, removal of colon tissue in procedures conducted by surgeons. So, Nick, how would you feel 
would you be willing to be operated on from 384,400 kilometers away, which is obviously the distance between the um, the Earth and the moon? Obviously. Um, I think that would be my only option. So yes, if I was on the moon, <laughs> that the answer would be yes. Uh, I This to me, the story reminds me immediately of a line that Joe Keebler brought up during our interview where we talked about the human factors uh, and ergonomics healthcare symposium. He actually mentioned almost this very exact thing as one of the future problems of human factors in healthcare. So I'm excited that we get to talk about it on the show. Uh, he was talking about it specifically in terms of deep space flight and robotic surgeons that would have to do it themselves, not necessarily telepresence or um, anything like that. But to me, this is an awesome story. I think there's a lot of really interesting human factors things that go into this. Can't wait to dig into it. Barry, what is your initial reaction to this story? Yeah, I think I'm very much um, along the same vein. It's it's amazing technology, and it is something that is essential for us for us to de develop. Not only for them springboards for the for Luna for um, you know let's bring it all back to Mars, my favorite subject. Um, but you know, if we're going to go and colonize these sort of areas, we've got to be able to for for those people who are, go, who are going and doing that, they've got to be able to survive, and it's not all going to be roses. There's there's going to be needs for medical interventions, so we need to work out ways for this to happen. But also, it helps us here in in on planet Earth as well, um, because we do have. Um, people who are specialists, brilliant specialists, and the only reason that they can't do some things is because of transport issues, maybe them being on the other side of the world and things like that. So this really pushes that idea of telepresence, teleexistence, that type of thing. So I think it's fascinating. Um, now, whether it's something I would then feel that comfortable, with, I'm very comfortable for other people to have this done to them, but whether I would be quite as comfortable when I'm the subject, I think that would be an in interesting study in itself. Well, it's... It really depends on where you're at, right? If I was here on Earth, I'd prefer somebody in person, obviously. But if I'm on the moon and it's my only option, of course I'm going to do that. Um, we have a, a couple interesting... You've done something, Barry. You've you've gone out and you've actually sourced <laughs> some comments on this, um, one of which we've actually had on the show. So uh, one person of which I should say. And so I think what we should do is maybe sprinkle these throughout. So maybe... Do you want to read the first one here uh, as sort of a comment on the story and then we can get into some of the human factors issues, come back to more of these later. Absolutely, yeah. So, I, we, like I said, we did try something different tonight. I threw it out there on um, Twitter and LinkedIn to get basically get people's thoughts on what they thought about it, particularly with this. I wanted to throw it out to some of the health community. And Dr. Steph Cormack came, came back, and um, they're a university lecturer and a former HEMS critical care paramedic and self-confessed research geek um, and a Packers fan, but that, that's a different story. But their comment was, wow, not seeing the Myra, but remote surgery, um, really remote plus the ability to be autonomous, but not AI, question mark, question mark. Comms could be an issue, depending on where and how it's used. IT control, the programming, decision-making around its use could be an issue. And it, gets, it depends on the SOPs or standard operating procedures. But, um, but they come to find it super interesting. So thank you very much um, uh, for, for, for giving us that, that bit of feedback, especially at such uh, short notice. That's really cool. Yeah. Maybe we could start talking about that to begin with, sort of the, um, the decision-making aspect of it. I think that is going to be a huge piece of the puzzle, especially when... Uh, and, and this is jumping the gun here, especially when you have sort of increased temporal delays... Uh, in in yeah. perhaps some of that deep space flight stuff. So let's talk about decision making. I think there's a lot of interesting 
things that are going on here, right? There's sort of a lack of awareness or can be a lack of awareness of what's actually going on contextually around the astronaut uh, that that will potentially need some of the uh, the treatment here. And so that awareness would directly impact the decision-making uh, piece. There's also sort of the increased risk associated with the decision-making that you need to do in a remote environment like the International Space Station, where uh, there's a lot more on the line than just somebody's life. Um, it's also sort of everybody else's lives in that contained space. I don't know. Barry, where do you want to start? Because I thought the decision-making would be a good place, but if you want to jump somewhere else, we totally can. No, I, th I think decision-making is good. I think is for me it's the whole process before you actually get into the operation itself i think it's that that process behind it first so when you look at the diagnosis so if we run about doing surgery remotely how do we know that we've got the right diagnosis for for what we're doing we you know we almost struggle going to your general practitioner or something to make sure that you've got that actual you know the proper thing um is there is there something around that that we you almost need sort of a second and third opinions? And I'm sure that it's stuff that they kind of do already because they must have to do that sort of thing. Um, the diagnosis, they just can't do anything about it or do little about it. But if you're actually going to literally like cut, cut into somebody, you've got to be super sure about what you're doing. So what are the procedures and, and things that you have to um, sign off on before that is done? Um, and then... How do, you must need to get the um, the platform, be it on a the ISS or some sort of um, space shuttle, that must have to get because it surely if it, if it fires um, uh, adjuster, you know, attitude adjusters in any sort of way whilst it's going through a delicate part of an operation, that's not going to be great, is it? So the environment has to be stable. Um, so the platform needs to be stable. Um, so you need to do this. You know, the the whole it has to fit in with the whole mission plan to make sure that it fits in, in that phase of flight. Um, and then you get into that whole, right, how does, how how do you, you know, what are the actions on um, things going wrong? So there's decisions that would need to be made and prior planning, no doubt will come into all of this. But if you have a loss of signal, um, so that could be a loss of, either loss of visual and um, audio comms, a lot of the, um, the actual control signals, controlling, the arm, the robot, or uh, whatever it is, um, what the actions on then, especially if, you know, I know we're not talking about open heart surgery at this point, but if you're, if you are, you know, you're doing some serious thing and suddenly the, um, the machine, does it stop working? Does it power down? Does it, does it fail safe in some way? So it, it retracts whatever it's doing, which could also be very dangerous. I think there's a lot of things that have to be thought through um, procedurally um about who takes control and when and how and how that works and then the the final bit um before i shut up and let, let you get a word in edgeways is who is in control of the operating theater so normally or from my understanding and i am um i'm not an expert in, in the health domain at all um i am aiming to be because I've, I've um hopefully picked up something which would be quite cool but the idea that um at the moment you have people in the room and you you know surgeons nurses um people who help clean things up etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's a whole hierarchy of people in there and whilst they're trying to invent a just culture and what they're doing so everybody's got the opportunity to speak up there is still somebody in charge you know there, there is a hierarchy if and the generally that's like uh, my understanding is that you know it's, it's that surgeon who's operating it tells everybody else what to do 
if that surgeon isn't actually in the room, they're, you know, three, three and a half thousand um, miles away type of thing, then um, who's actually in charge in the room and who gives a go, no go? Um, because presumably you still need nurses or some, some people with nurse training to do all the, all the, uh, the good stuff that nurses do when that happens. So I think there would need to be a very clear discipline and very clear uh, communication, very clear decision-making on who has control when of everything that's going on, not just the operation, but everything that's going on around it. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good segue into the, sort of the environment in which these surgeries uh, or operations would take place, right? And so how do you sort of communicate between those two parties where one might be controlling the thrusters on the ISS and one might be controlling, uh, you know, other sort of um, subsystems aboard the ISS that would make conditions better or worse for it, right? Um, and then how do you communicate between the surgeon and other parties aboard? You know, is somebody on board watching this to help communicate what's actually happening? And so that whole environmental design um, and not only that, but you're having to do this in low or zero G uh, where, you know, you have instrumentation potentially floating away. And I don't think that'll be an issue because I'm assuming they're all kind of attached to this robot. and You can kind of pick and choose what you need, depending on the situation. But I think this is a good opportunity to bring in another one of our social uh, comments. And this one's by actually friend of the show, Ken Catchpole. He's been on the show before. Um and uh, he's a he's a research practitioner, uh, you know, and, and so uh, go listen to our interview with him. It's great from Healthcare Symposium a couple years ago. He says current issues related to surgical robots, surgeon, team, technology, work environment all have challenges that are rarely considered. Docking and workspace are particular difficulties. Interesting zero G effects, especially with respect to instrument changes, uh, counting, etc. What procedures are surgical robots in space going to be assisting with? Are they elective? Are they emergent, open versus laparoscopic, vascular, cardiac, uh, urological, general? All have very different equipment and techniques and approaches and design implications. So that's an awesome comment. I think there's a lot to dig into there. We certainly mm. can. Where are you at, Barry? Yeah, I mean, the, the point that he makes quite rightly around docking and workstations, you know, that we, we sort of assume that they're, you know, standard things, you can make that work, but actually, what is that, what is that station going to be like back on Earth, in order for the surgeon to be immersed in what they're doing. So this is where we get the difference between uh, telepresence and teleexistence. So the telepresence being that, you know, you've, you can control what's going on, you can see what it sees. And but you, you know, you know, you're operating something um remotely the teleexistence is you can you almost feel like you are doing the job yourself so i think we are talking more telepresence than teleexistence um in terms of the nature of the feedback you're getting and things like that but that workstation has still got to be fit for purpose for what they're doing and i haven't seen i've seen some issues around oh i've seen some examples of remote um surgery um uh, but how this would work to make sure they've got all the views they need to see um, and all the controls they need to see. On the plus side, they don't need to, on the, um, on the surgeon's side, they don't need to be sterile. Does that offer up more um, 
more opportunities there because they don't have to have the restrictions of all the scrubbings and you know the gloves and all the gear. They can just go and do what they want to do. But would they still maybe want to do something similar to feel like they're um, being immersed? So we do this a lot with synthetic training. You know, you still go through the steps that you would normally go through, whether you're flying live or synthetic, to get you in in the zone, as it were. Um, the types well, you know, of surgery, everyone's sorry. working from home now, so I mean, surgeons, no difference, right? <laughs> yeah, just easy done. Uh, just do doing it in lap. shorts and a tank top. Yeah, <laughs> we, we just a mouse and a keyboard and a few keyboard shortcuts. I mean, what could go wrong? Pressing con- uh, control and C and control and B. Yeah, um, exactly. Different things. <laughs> the, the point he makes as well around types of surgery that that we're trying to do. I mean, at some point, you know, they're not going to be able to do everything. And I think you know, in the actual article at the moment, they're talking about doing. Um, I think it did say non-invasive procedures. Um, but the, but it will get more and more. It, they will have to get get there. But at what point? And it goes back to your point with the decision making. Is at what point is too is it too much? How do you how do you stretch the boundaries of this safely? How do you know what the art of the possible and the practicable is? Given that it's you know you can only practice and test for so long. You know at some point you've got to have live patients, and you'll only know what you can do when you do it. So. Yeah, I think can make some really, really interesting points there. Um, and they're all stuff, I think, from a human factors perspective, we're going to have to keep keep on checking through. Um, and we're going to have to be involved at every step of the um, every step of the way. Yeah, I, I want to jump into latency, because I think that is oh, another yeah. area that I am particularly interested in. There's, there's a whole bunch of issues with latency that um, you know, obviously, as we're communicating to the space station, it's not going to be a latency that is, I don't know, unmanageable. Is that fair to say? But mm-hmm. when you start getting into more of this deep, deeper space flight, yeah. a time delay, if you if you need sort of a, a human to make calls, right, that maybe an artificial intelligent agent aboard is actually performing the surgery, but needs human input. There's going to be that delay time. How do you sustain them? If it's a, you know, mission critical uh, life saving uh, intervention at that moment, like there's, there's all these other issues that we can certainly go down a rabbit hole with when it comes to deeper space flight, but thinking locally, what that latency would mean is that um, there's not, a one-to-one control, you are controlling and it's on a delay. And so mm-hmm. if it, you would need to, and we experience this even with making a podcast on a week-to-week basis, if there's like a time compression in some of the feed, then then you're operating off of information that's seconds old and the situation may have changed drastically in uh, in that amount of time where you were operating off of knowledge that was you know, a couple seconds ago. And so, again, this is higher stakes, but it's something to think about from a human factors perspective, right? This is this is minor surgery that we're talking about here. But when we do get towards these larger um, sort of more invasive surgeries, I, I can think of like somebody gets injured on on, you know, a Mars colony or something. They've fallen over um, and, you know, sliced open their leg or I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, there's a bunch yeah, of other issues that would happen first cold. with that. Yeah. 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 But, um, you know, or an amputation needs to happen or something. That's, I mean, there's some really terrible things that can happen in space. And so, <laughs> I mean, go watch any science fiction. Uh, I'm <laughs> so, um, 
But I, you think about sort of the time delay that it would that you would need in order to accomplish those tasks, and it is significant. You also need to think about, like you said, the environment. Is there a dedicated um, uplink to that space station in this case, or spaceship? Uh, I would where I, I would hope so too. Um, <laughs> but I mean, this is this is an issue for uh, you know here on Earth too. If you're if you're doing mm-hmm. surgery on somebody halfway across the planet or on the other side of the planet, let's say, then you still need to consider those things as well. Um, if the ping is any higher than something that's noticeable, then there's going to be an adjustment where you need to be able to adapt to those changes in latency. I mean, you can, you can see this when you're playing like online video games, even, you know, if, if there's, if there's lag, it's frustrating because your input is not what is happening on screen. And so imagine that, but with surgery. <laughs> yes. I mean, again, the, um, going back to Steph's comment earlier, um, mentioned about being, you know, the, the use of autonomy, the, the use of AI maybe, and maybe that, you know, we are going to have to have a bigger input in that because like you say, the, is it the case that the surgeon is going to have to state their intent and the robot completes the work for them? Um, because there is no way that they can interact in, in any, anything like real time. So there is going to, again, so, you know, is the surgeon then making the decision stating what it is that they want to achieve and the, um, the platform is there then. So they said the, the operating robot is there to carry out the operation autonomously, um, which on the one hand will be good in case, you know, with some of the other issues that we talked about, how do you deal, how do you know that you're in, in comms? How do you know um, that you have signal? What happens on loss of signal? That would solve a lot of that. Brilliant. Um, but also scare, uh, <laughs> my personal fear factor would be that a little bit higher, I think. Yeah, um, certainly. But though, if I'm in, if I'm on Mars and needing help, I, maybe I wouldn't care because as long as I'm getting the help, then that's good. Right, um, even if it's yeah minutes apart. Right? <laughs> yes. Um, uh, I mean, we we actually had a whole conversation about this. If you go back and listen to our episode on flying a helicopter on Mars, yeah, uh, that is that is a lot of the same latency issues. I don't want to rehash a lot of those sort of uh, arguments or conversations because you can go listen to that episode right now. But um, a lot of those would apply here as well. The, the interesting pieces of that conversation that would be worth bringing back up are some points that you have here in the notes, Barry, about what happens if you have a sig- signal failure. Um, what happens if the connection drops? Uh, how do you know if you have a stable connection? What are the fallback procedures for when there is sort of a lack of communication or or disruption in communication. Those are important things to know and have planned out ahead of time. Because if something does happen where you lose that signal, you want at least, uh, you know, does does the robot disengage from whatever it's doing? Well, it depends on what you're doing in that moment. If you're holding an artery, you might want to not not let go of that thing. And yeah. so you're going to need to think about all the possible modes in which this robot that is being controlled by a human could be in and what to do. It's almost like a flow chart, right? If you think about if this, then that, uh, you know, building logic to say, you know, if it's holding an artery, don't disengage. If it is, then if it isn't, then 
what else is it doing? Um, so that's that's a whole other conversation. Do you do you want to add any additional points to that? Kind of. Yeah, rambling? I think the. I mean, no, but I think that that whole um, the, the the logic tree is is absolutely spot on for what this will need to do because you know it's so in keeping with the the stuff we talked about before on autonomous vehicles and things like that. Um, the ethics, be you know, it, there, there's a whole bunch of ethical things here as well around you know on you know you're losing power do you power the uh, uh the robot or do you power the spacecraft or you know all of that sort of stuff we are going to have to dig into and and really make work and but also make sure that these you know these logic trees of sa- uh, safety analyses this is going to have to have so much safety analysis it will be um well clearly it's going to be quite good fun to do it but the cause there's going to be a lot of it because it's going to have to be tested and tested and tested and tested because you don't want, it's not like you're driving your, um, you know, electric vehicle in autonomous mode and it, it makes a bit of an error. You put your hands on the wheel and take control. This taking control of this is probably not going to be an option in the same way by any stretch of it. Um, it's got to be right before it leaves. Um, and then that sort of get, does push us into the, you know, this, this type of technology is clearly there to support, long missions we've already mentioned like mars more i mean hopefully we're going to be you know in the next few years colonizing mars looking further afield this is what the technology is going to be to help go and support their missions how do you then keep that sort of stuff sterile how do you keep it safe because it's going to have supplies and things that it's going to need so there's going to be logistical issues around that because it's all very well bringing stuff out already but this stuff is going to have to be you know bagged within bags within bags um, to make sure it's super sterile at all times. Now, I'm fairly sure that they probably deal with a lot of that stuff already. Um, but again, it goes back to the, the we sort of touched upon uh, the training that is going to be required to, you might not be a uh, qualified nurse, doctor or anything when you're on a space mission, but you're going to have to have a, a more than rudimentary understanding of the type of operations that this thing can carry out and how to maintain it and uh, operate it just just to get it up and running, if it's going to be in a some sort of box, et cetera, et cetera, then you've got to be able to set it up and make sure that it works. And that uh, the usability behind that, the usability mechanisms, the, um, the the way that you teach people, the way that it gets set up, that's going to have to be as simple as possible. It is going to be, you know, almost idiot's guide, idiot proof to make sure that anybody within the mission team, or because at some point, presumably we're not just sending, you know, uh, very trained astronauts up, you know, passen- um, civilian passengers, um, uh, space tourism, things like that is now a thing. Um, are they going to need to be able to potentially use these type of things in, in an emergency situation? Yeah, so I was going to jump. I was, I was going to jump in and say, we're not calling astronauts stupid. That's not what we're doing <laughs> when we're talking about the usability of these things. Yeah. But we do have to. Yeah, you're right. We do have to consider the ease of use, because as you mentioned, we are becoming a space-bearing uh, civilization. And so that's something to think about as we <laughs> sort of expand away from our home. Um, I, I want to bring up a couple extra things, and then maybe we could talk about the last uh, sort of social interaction here. Mm-hmm. You've put in the notes, trust in the machine. And this is a big one that I want to touch on because there's – there's two aspects of this. There's the surgeon's trust in the, that the machine is doing the things that it is, in fact, telling the machine to do. The surgeon also has trust in 
whether or not that machine is capable of taking over if there is a signal loss, if something does go wrong. There's also the trust from the patient. So does the patient trust this machine to relay those moves by the surgeon accurately? Does the patient trust that this machine is capable of doing the job? These are a lot of different things that we have to think about in terms of communication and ensuring that both parties feel at ease. And there's also a third variable is like decision makers. And there's a fourth variable, which is onlookers or other passengers or anyone around in that environment. There's going to be a lot of different parties at play, maybe more than we're actually thinking of, because the decision makers at Mission Control need to think about whether or not this is going to be an effective solution to the problem of somebody getting injured. Um, you know, is it worth intervening in flight or can it wait until they get back down, especially for some of those minor ones, right? And so there's the decision makers are a piece of it, the the patient, the surgeon, and any onlookers, right? They're they're gonna need to be how do how do you get them out of the way? Yeah. Or how do you yeah. get them to understand the importance uh, if they are like space tourists, right? How do you get them to understand the importance of what is actually happening here? Somebody's getting operated on. Um, th there's just a lot of different things that we have to think about with trust. Do you want to talk about any more about trust? And we should probably get to that third. Uh, yeah, I think actually this is a good time to jump into that final um, so social thought that, that came in from uh, Harold Thimbleby, who's a professor of social science, uh, sorry, professor of computer science. And he says that two of the two of the overlooked HF issues are the unnoticed errors the developers make, which induce adverse ev events, and which continue to be ignored during investigations. So there's there's sort of two bits there where um, I think really what he's getting at is when the the, the controlling software, the controlling system is is created, that um, that there might be developer induced error. Um, that just isn't picked up through factory acceptance testing, um, on-site testing, and, and install testing, um, things like that, which is probably fair. I'd, I'd argue whether that's an HF issue or that that is just actually um, an, uh, an acceptance testing issue. But the um, the impact of that would be a, um, a human factors issue. Um, and then also, you know, he does mention investigations, which I think is um, also interesting. Something we haven't touched upon. In the fact that it's gonna, you know, this system is gonna have to keep an audit trail. It's gonna have to be um, the ability to go back and, uh, and either replay what's happened um, on both a successful and potentially an unsuccessful operation. Because on a successful operation, you need to be able to go back and say, right, to your normal doctor, this is what happened to me. Um, and you can see, you know, for future medical in interventions or medical records, et cetera, et cetera. So that's going to need to be recorded. Um, and for unsuccessful operations, things around um, so that that investigation, what went wrong, um, autopsy, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, in the investigation, so the audit trail, the record keeping. Um, is going to be um, is going to be quite key as well. Yeah, and bringing up those errors, I, I'm going to go back to my conversation with Joe Keebler again because this is one thing that he kept hammering home is that it's okay to make errors in medicine, and that we need to be sort of more forthcoming about those errors and talk about them, so that way we can learn from them. 
So do you have any other closing thoughts on this one, Barry? I think overall, I think there is so much to be to be playing with. Um, but the, it's none of this is not solvable. All of it by good human factors process, good human factors integration, um, will see us work through all of these different elements. Fundamentally for me, I think it's exciting. I think this is truly, you know, edge of healthcare stuff. Um, the it will it will we'll sort of see how it comes out. Um, I think it's I, I just can't wait to see where they go with it next. Yeah, me too. Uh, this is this is gonna be really interesting to see the progression of how it goes from just a little box on the ISS doing small surgeries to something that is involved deep space space flight. Uh, where you know it it uh, it's going to involve really really detailed surgeries and really life saving interventions for the people who need it. Um, yeah, I, I don't have anything else to add to that other than uh, you know the, there is sort of a, an announcement of the lunar gateway here that's an orbiting lunar outpost uh, that NASA is putting together, um, and that's it's uh, international and private partners. It could potentially prompt some more medical procedures in space, which, um, again, when thinking about some of these life-threatening accidents that could happen, is going to be really key. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic. And it was close this week. It was really close, actually, between this and a couple others. Uh, (laughs) And thank you to our friends over at Gizmodo for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to the original articles on our weekly roundups and our blog. You can also join us on our discord for more discussion on these stories and more. Barry, the reference is, is snakes on a plane. It's like two thousands. Oh yeah. Okay. No, I've had it with these human factors, robots on this human factors space station. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons. We especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Seriously, everything that you give to this show, we give back to our lab, which increases the quality and production and research that goes into these shows. We seriously couldn't do it without you. Uh, there's there's so much support that uh, we truly appreciate that. To do that, we actually give back to you. So we, of course, mentioned Human Factors Minute a million times on the show. We have other things for our Patreon supporters as well. We have things like full audio versions of this very podcast. What is that? Well, Barry and I do a little pre-show and a post-show every week. Every week, you get an extra hour of Nick and Barry. And so we package that up and uh, and send that to our patrons in an audio version. Uh, we also do a weekly Q&A that you may or may not know about. 
uh, that is exclusive to our patrons. They can ask us anything like what's our favorite ice cream flavor or uh, how do I solve this complex human factors problem at work? We'll answer it. Uh, we also have early access to the show. We post that a couple hours early over there. I mean, we was like 9, 9 p.m. Pacific is when we drop our episodes. But over there, they get it at like five Pacific or something. So if you wanted a couple hours early, if you want to listen on a Thursday instead of a Friday, you can do that. And we also have bonus content uh, like, uh, you know, sometimes we'll occasionally get access to other things. So when we did the um, EHF coverage, Barry was so kind to give us all the interviews with the folks in full uh, unedited. And we were able to provide those for you all. Uh, we also have exclusive sneak peeks for some things. Like when we did our big logo redesign. Anyway, lots of fun things. Barry, you're highlighting bonus content. Why are you highlighting it? I wasn't. I was just messing around while you were okay, talking. Okay, all right. <laughs> I was like, do you have something to announce? All right, anyway, let's get to this next part of the show we like to call. It came from. It came from. Yeah, it came from. This is the part of the show where we look all over the internet to bring you whatever the community is talking about. Uh, if you find any of these answers useful, no matter where you're watching or listening, give this a like. Like, boop the like button. To, to help other people find this stuff. All right, we got three tonight. We always have three. We aim for three. It works well. Uh, <laughs> this first one here is from the UX Research subreddit by Tiny Scientist 2382 They write, how often do UX researchers travel for research purposes? Pretty interested in the field work aspect of UX research, so I wanted to understand how often researchers travel domestically or abroad. How long are these trips? What kind of research methods do you use while in the field? Barry? Where's that? It depends button. We, we need uh, that. It depends button. Um, so, yeah, it, it really does depend on what it is that we're doing. So I'm primarily defense, which I think most people know. Um, most of my work is, is probably UK. Um, so um, domestic. And it's so... So depend if I'm doing some like sort of real um, infield testing, we could be doing some of that. If I'm doing some just straight going to engage with users to get you know uh, that early opinion stuff, that could be two or three times in a project. But it really depends on your um, on the user community. How big is it? How much can you get uh, people from it? So I've worked with from all the way from you know large infantry um, organizations that you get a lot of people all the way through to specialist vehicles where you maybe got eight to 10 people who can do it and seven of them are deployed. So you can only talk to one, maybe two. Um, and you've got to re and the, the methods and uh, they all, the Vogel could take that into account because um, of, you know, the, you get expert users and, and all that sort of bias and influence. Fundamentally the, the, the main method, no matter, well, no matter what method, um, it largely involves pen and paper um, because if you've got the type of work I'm doing, if you're going out to the field, then the chances of you being able to take really cool uh, measurement gadgets and all that sort of stuff, um, not only from a security perspective, but also just you're in the field um, is difficult. So you've got to be really flexible with what you're, um, what you're doing, but also be able to pair it back and be quite agile to react to changing situations because what you think you're normally going to normally changes quite rapidly once you get there. Nick, what, what what about you? What what how do you feel with from your experience? Yes, it depends. I'm hearing two questions, and I'm going to respond to those two questions based on all the variables that Barry laid out. How often and how long? 
How often? Could be anywhere from once a month, once every couple months. What I tend to see as average is maybe once a month for, for most jobs. Maybe twice uh, or maybe once every two months. In terms of duration, this also depends. I know people who have been on naval vessels for weeks, a month, two months, all in ter- uh, all for user research. And then I've also known people who have made a quick day trip somewhere uh, to, to go and talk to somebody on a private jet. So, you know, killing the environment, but for user research. So, I don't know, weigh that. I, it's <laughs> all that to say... In my experience, you're probably looking at a couple days at a time, maybe once every couple months. And that is probably an, a, a good barometer for uh, what's average. But I am curious what other people in the field experience. So, you know, throw them up in our Discord. I'd love to hear those. Um, all right, let's 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 get into this next one here. I talked about access to users. This one, This one's getting at that. This one's from the UX Research subreddit again by... Few Yogurt Closet 885, research and interviews. I'm enrolled in a design course, and I was wondering how a UX position in a company uh, is in a company or corporate environment. Where will I find people to research and interview? Will I have to find these people myself, or is there a database of people willing to be contacted? Barry, where is it? Um, so again, I'll give my perspective. Well, give my defense perspective and my external perspective. Normally, I guess I find I have user champions um, or points of contact at least. If I'm working on a defense project, I will have a, um, a user champion who I can go and say, right, I need to talk to whatever's available, uh, be it one or two people. You know, we, we make the best of what, what is available. Ten, it tends to be quite hard to get hold of these people. So we will try and do everything we can and and get them when it's almost at their convenience because they're doing the day job. When I'm looking at more civilian-based things, then again, it's all, it really depends on the type of project we're doing. Um, if we do an early um, intervention stuff, then I'm more I tend to be more persona-driven really early on. So I will try and capture a few people and then build from that. Um, but again, I'll be let, I'll be kind of led by my client to a certain extent um, to see if they can get a hold of them sort of people. It's rare that I use a database of random people, but um, I know a lot of other people who do because they do more, um, say, just straight um, UI design work. Um, they will have a, they can have a database of people that, that are willing to be contacted and engage with um, for small fees or um, bags of chips. Mm-hmm. Nick, how do you get hold of um, users in, in your environment? <laughs> I think. Well, it's a challenge, right? It's a challenge. It's a cha- It's always a challenge to get access to users, especially when there is some sort of specialized skill set that those users have as they use your tool, product, whatever you're building. And so, like you said, it depends, uh, but it really depends on, I guess, how specialized that skill set is and how what the population of people with that skill set is, right? So Barry's working in defense. He might need somebody who works on a very specific interface in a very specific ship or, you know, whatever, and, and they're doing a very specific task. Well, that pool is probably like three or four people because they're just on a rotating shift. So 
you need to go to those three or four people. That can be very difficult unless you have contacts that can get you in touch with those people or the people that are giving them commands and are basically saying volunteer your time to you know talk to these people because they're trying to make your job easier then you have the opposite end where you're kind of designing for the general public and of course you're going to have personas you're going to have different user types but those are fairly easy because you could go to one of those databases you could just pull somebody off the street and say hey you want to make a quick buck tell me how this is and then you have somewhere in the middle where there's specialized skill sets that use your product uh, or are doing a service that you are building or you know any anything like that. This could be human factors as well. And you're going to want to target those people. And that's a little bit more difficult. That's not as difficult as getting the four people. Sometimes actually that can be easier. <laughs> so, so if you think about the people that you're trying to get to, it's all about those connections. How do you get to those people? And how do you sort of communicate what's in it for them? And how do you compensate them for their time? That's, yeah, it's it's a tricky process. And there's no one size fits all for it. It's really going to depend on whatever you're working on and what the user skill set is like. Any other thoughts on that one, Barry? No, I think we've, it depended. No, it, it depended it to death. Yes. <laughs> All right, we got one more here. This one's um by half okay two three two three two six three, all those numbers, but on the user experience subreddit, they write what matters most for junior designers, and I'm gonna extrapolate here and say junior positions, um, so hiring managers, what matters most when you're looking for junior designers during portfolio and interview, and again, this is kind of a uh, uh, junior positions. Well, it depends, doesn't it? <laughs> ah. <laughs> um, I mean, for me, when I'm looking at junior junior roles, um, I'm looking for enthusiasm. I'm looking for motivation, and I'm looking for a bit of get up and go. Um, obviously, you've got the CV in front of you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that have gone through the initial sifting process. So you've got somebody who, on paper, looks. Um, you know, it looks good. What I'm after when I'm actually speaking to them is to get that, um, is to get that spark. And I'm not necessarily looking for exact skills at this point because if you're if you're junior, I can't expect you to have. Um, I also think it's really unrealistic when you have like uh, junior experience, uh, junior position, and I want you to have like sort of eight years experience. It's like no, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not expecting any experience or minimal experience. But what I'm looking for is enthusiasm and keenness to to learn and take stuff on and 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 be able to i almost like to see um how you're going to fit in the team and that actually that goes with any position i hire it's like i've got i've got my team if i had you what what secret sauce are you bringing to the team um that i don't necessarily have already and that is junior or senior um so yeah i'm, I'm looking for motivation I'm, I'm looking for enthusiasm what about you nick what, what, what do you bring in when you're hiring people yeah I look like to me, you're right. The the enthusiasm is a sort of major piece of it. I think also their ability to problem solve, if that's fair to say. Like I, I wanna I I don't care about their skill set so much. There's there's going to be 
obviously there's there's different levels of experience. This is this is a hard question, harder mm. question than I thought. I looked at this and said, "Oh, this will be easy." Junior positions can vary. You can get the people who are coming out of a master's program, but you can also get people who are coming out of a weekend boot camp that are applying, and you can also get people who have got like a bachelor's degree. There's varying levels of education, and so there's no real equalizer when it comes to a junior position. There's obviously going to be those who have more skills based on the route that they took. Someone who took a weekend book boot camp is not going to have as many skills as somebody who has their bachelor degree. Um, I'm saying skills and practice, not necessarily knowledge. And and that goes the same for somebody who's gone through the rigor of academic an academic environment, right? They're they're going to have a different skill set than somebody who's gone a different approach. And to me, it's their ability to problem solve. It doesn't matter what techniques you know at that point. If you're applying for a junior position, I, I want you to be able to sort of think about a problem and be able to put your mind to it and think critically about sort of how to approach it and communicate those thoughts. I think the other piece is communication. So. Yeah. So ability to problem solve communication. Those are the two things that I'm looking for. Everything okay. else equal, right? Yeah, we and we when I interview, we specifically test for that as well. And I think I've talked about it in um in previous episodes where we have a specific question where we'll come up with we have a specific one and I, I won't say it on here just in case we do interview somebody who's listening. Um, but we do have a it's almost a ridiculous research question. Um but and we don't expect anyone to actually get the answer. Um, but all, what I'm looking for is to say, you know, think aloud. This is the question. What's your answer? And, and we're expecting them to make some assumptions, make some uh, hypothesis, um, work through the logic of how they get to the answer, and then come to the answer. And and if you can do that, then I think that's brilliant. Um, we did mention portfolio, and I don't think either of us touched on, on portfolio. Uh, with portfolio stuff, again, I would think about who, you know, who is it you're actually going to interview with? Who are you showing your portfolio to? Show the stuff in your portfolio that best best fits what they're looking for. If they're looking for broad range research stuff, then go wild, show everything you've done. If you're going to work for a company that just produces websites for um, um, for the uh, for the financial industry, then if you've got stuff that fits around that, prioritize that, bring that to the front. Um, but just make it suit you know your portfolio is there to prove that. Um, or at least show you've got some ideas that can be applicable to the industry you're trying to go into. And that's that's me. That's that. All right, well, let's get into this next part of the show. Needs no introduction. It's just one more thing. Barry, what's your one more thing this week? My one more thing I've mentioned before that I've been doing a, a beginner's archery course. Well, yesterday, I, I, yeah, I um, or Robin Hood in the UK is probably more oh, okay. applicable. Uh, but the um, but no, I, I've I've now finished that, and and I got I got called competent. Wow. They think I'm actually competent to use this this weapon of destruction, um, and it's been it's, it's been a six week course. It's been absolutely brilliant. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And but what I found most re- valuable about it is to be able to do it even vaguely well. You have to be able to clear your mind. You have to be able to just focus on what you do. Because if you, I've done it a couple of times when I've gone I've gone to a session. And um, I've been stressed out by the day. I've only just made it there last minute type thing. Jumped into the session and my shots are complete rubbish. And you have to be able to sit there, breathe, 
clear your mind and focus on what you're doing so to, to the to the detriment of everything else and so that's what i think it's sort of going to keep on going with um hopefully do it once maybe twice a week and see if how that helps my um my mental health and my um, and general well-being but um i'm just it's it's quite a small thing but it just feels it's been so long since i've done a sort of course that's ended in a completion of a of a something like that and i, I was just very proud of myself well that's awesome i'm i'm Super glad that you are in, engaging with meditative uh, archery. I think that's good for you and your mind and your body and your soul. Yes. Um, my one more thing this week is something that I've had on my list for a very long time to talk about, but something else always kind of come up. I actually had, um, so there's this uh, company service, whatever. I, I'll i mention the name and I'll put a link in the description. Like it'll be a reference link it'll go back to the show but i'm not getting paid for any of this i just genuinely enjoy this service um i'm a hard person to shop for when it comes to clothes and so there's this service called stitch fix that will basically hire a stylist for you at a premium like 20 bucks a month or something and uh they'll they'll send you a box of clothes and stuff Whoa. it'll come to your door and you try them on and you say do you like it or not and if you don't like it, why don't you like it? And they'll adjust their recommendations for next time. <clears throat> and so I've gotten so many good clothes out of this thing. I'm not wearing them right now, but I've I've gotten so many clothes out of this thing that I really enjoy. And and there's um, you know, a pair of shoes that I got, some pants that fit me well. I'm I have a weird body. Uh, and so like trying to find things that fit me well uh is hard. And so when I can get just get something that matches my style sent to my door and I can kind of put it it sounds like an advertisement. I promise it's not. But um you know it it is one of those things where I'm just like this is a really cool thing that uh not a lot of people are doing and it's really unique because I can communicate with my stylist and say hey you know I really like that blazer you sent me. Can you is there another size that fits me better? Um or something similar, and they'll send it back. They'll send you. They'll send you another one. It's a very cool product, a very cool service, and it's just something that I'm actually really excited about. So I don't know. Like I said, I'll put a link down below or something. It, again, we'll get a kickback from it, but um, it's not an advertisement. I promise you, it's not an advertisement. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that is it for today. Uh, if you like this episode and enjoy some of the discussion about uh, deep space surgeries, I'll encourage you to go listen to. Uh, Episode 228, is the Mars mission doomed from the start? Maybe. I don't know. That's a good one. There's some <laughs> other good ones in there, too. I don't know why that one's there. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. <laughs> for more in-depth discussion, you can join us on our Discord community. Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, you can leave us a five-star review. Uh, Barry and I were just talking about that in the pre-show. It's free for you to do. It really helps us out. Two, you can always tell your friends about us. That also really helps us out. Word of mouth is how we grow. And three, if you're financially able and want to get some of those extra goody bonuses that we talked about, always support us on Patreon. We are eternally grateful for those folks. Uh, and as always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you for joining me on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you? They want to talk about robots in space. <laughs> If you want to go and talk to me about robots in space, then as some people have already done done today, go and hit me up on Twitter at Baz underscore K and come listen to some of my interviews, one-to-one uh, -one interviews with HF specialists um, and learn a bit more about what different domains do at, at the 1202 Human Factors podcast, which is at 1202podcast.com. 
As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on our Discord and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time. It depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.